0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. All right. All right. What's going on, guys? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is The Other People Show. I'm happy to have you here. I have a wonderful conversation to share with Robin McLean, author of the debut novel, Pity the Beast, now available from And Other Stories. That's the name of the imprint, And Other Stories. Robin McLean is a very gifted writer who has written an audacious I think that might be the right word for it. A very audacious, gothic, western, ecofeminist, feminist adventure comedy. <laughs> uh, and you know what? I got to put an asterisk next to comedy because when I say comedy, I mean dark comedy. Very dark comedy. Like uh, subterranean dark but funny, truly comedic, and smart, and just beautifully written, and strange. It is raining in Los Angeles right now, which I feel obligated to make note of since I live here. And when you live in Los Angeles, rain is a big deal. People who live here feel compelled to announce to the world, <laughs> to the world that it's raining. The Other People Podcast is offered freely, did you know that? And hey, it's the holiday season. This is a listener-supported show. If you want to support this show, you can do that for as little as one dollar a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. For as little as a dollar a month. Tip your server. I also keep forgetting to mention that this podcast has its own email newsletter. Did you know that I send out an email newsletter every week? I announce the latest episode, but I also share things that I've been reading, things that I like, things that are interesting. It's relatively painless. I try to make it useful. If you would like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can do that at the show's official website. Just go to otherppl.com. Look in the left sidebar. And you'll see in small print, it says, I think like subscribe to the email newsletter. You just click that and you, uh, you sign up. It's easy. And I only send it out once a week. I'm not going to keep, uh, hammering you with emails or anything. So that said, I do have some news. I've got some big news or some relatively big news. The cover of my upcoming novel is going to be revealed today, Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. We are going public with it. It's going to happen on social media, over on Twitter, at OtherPPL, and on Instagram, at OtherPPL.podcast. I'm also going to share it with my uh, email newsletter subscribers. One more reason to sign up. So I guess this is like a thing now in publishing. You do what is called a cover reveal. Maybe this has been going on for longer than I think. I feel like it's a relatively new thing where people share their covers on social media and whatnot, and they call it a reveal. (laughs) It's a little bit silly, but it's also kind of fun. So maybe you've already seen it by the time you're hearing this. You can now judge my book by its cover. And personally, I love it. I'm, I'm excited that the book has what I feel is a very good cover. It is understated, and it is tonally correct in terms of the novel's contents. Did I say the name of the book? It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, and it is due out from Ig Publishing in May of 2022. And it has a cover. I still have to go through the manuscript and offer up my final corrections. But before I do that, I'm taking some time away from it. Trying to get it out of my head. The plan right now is to forget about it as much as I can until after Christmas. And then I'm going to read it in a straight shot. Once or twice, I will make my changes and then I will be done. I'm not going to get neurotic about it. I'm just going to go through it. I'm going to be as concentrated as I possibly can be, make those changes and be done. I still haven't gotten my physical galleys, which I think I mentioned in a recent episode, but apparently they're coming next week before the holiday. I did hear from my publisher, Robert Lasner, over at Ig Publishing. And he said they're they're coming soon. So the timing should work out. I'll get a physical copy of the book. I'll hold it in my hands. And then I will go somewhere. I will leave the house <laughs> with my book. I will be at large with my book. And maybe I'll go to the beach. I don't know but I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to sit down and I'll read it with a red pen in my hand and I'll make my final changes on the text I've also been working on my website bradlisty.com all these things you got to do before your book comes out I you know I feel like I got to do this stuff need to update my website The new version is not live yet. I'm going to launch it in the new year. So I'm sure I'll tell you about it when that happens, but it's a more robust website, more professional (laughs) than the uh, current version, which by my estimation is sort of like an anti-website. I kind of like that about it. I like how bad it is, but I'm going to update it, add some more stuff, some more features, some more information. I got my author photos taken a while back. I think I told you that I'm doing my due diligence, going through my pre-publication checklist. I'm just trying to do my job, you know? So much of the process at this stage, a little less than six months out from publication, it's mostly psychological, right? I've been going through periods where I really like the book and I feel really happy about it. And then there are other times where I'll feel concerned about it. I'll start worrying about what people are going to think and what they're going to say and all that sort of stuff. This morning I caught myself imagining how I'm going to handle answering questions about the book when people ask me about it. Not, not that like hundreds of people are going to be asking me about the book but you know what I mean. Some people are going to ask me. They're going to have things to say, and I'm going to have to respond. I'm thinking about family and friends, or possibly an interview situation. And what's interesting is that I'm not all that clear about exactly what my book is, or at least it feels that way. What do I say about it? It sounds kind of strange considering I'm the person who wrote it, but these questions of why I wrote it or what I was trying to do or whatever people might ask me, it's an odd thing to have these sorts of feelings, this kind of foggy sensation. And I'm imagining it's a sensation that other authors might be able to relate to. It's this thing where, you know, you write the book, you go through that whole process and then... Eventually it becomes a book and as it does, it starts to become alien to you a little bit. It's almost like I didn't write it. It's like some other version of me wrote it or something. Anyway, that is the latest and it's all exciting. For all of my rumination, for all of my hand-wringing, I understand this is part of what you go through, and I'm just sharing it with you, as I told you that I would. Once again, the novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is uh, personal, it's autofiction, and it is due out from Ig Publishing in May of 2022. The official pub date is May 10th, 2022. If you're a literary critic or a book blogger, journalist, literary podcaster, what have you, and you would like a copy of the book, just email me. Again, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Behind the Glass Door, the truth about trade book publishing in the 2020s. This is a four-part conversation series taking place in February 2022, hosted By author Lee Stein, a past guest on this program, along with literary agent Aaron Hosier and speaker Brandy Larson. So what is Behind the Glass Door? Here's what it is. It is an outgrowth of a realization that Lee Stein had when she noticed that there's a huge disconnect between the way that writers are taught to think about their manuscripts and how publishing professionals think about books. So She has invited literary agent Aaron Hosier and former Penguin Random House publishing executive Brandy Larson into the fold to talk candidly about the book publishing process. This is a four-week conversation series, and it's a business of publishing course that most MFA programs don't offer, all for a fraction of the price. This is a great thing for serious writers who are about to embark on a new project, whether it's your first book or your fifth book. You can find out who the true decision-makers are in the secretive acquisitions meetings and what publishers are specifically looking for before they make an offer and why advance sizes vary so greatly and what has changed about the publication process since the pandemic wreaked havoc on New York power lunches. So again, this is called Behind the Glass Door The Truth About Trade Book Publishing in the 2020s. It is happening on February 3rd, 10th, 17th, and 24th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. It's a four-part series, February 3rd, 10th, 17th, and 24th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. on Zoom. It is $149 for all four 90-minute sessions with a Q&A. Seating is limited, and sliding scale tickets are available for those with financial hardship. This is a live series. It will not be recorded. If you're interested in registering, you can do that at com slash glass hyphen door. That's leestein, L-E-I-G-H-S-T-E-I-N dot com slash glass hyphen door. If you're interested in learning more about the business of modern publishing and getting wise, sign up right now. So my guest today is Robin McLean. Her debut novel is called Pity the Beast, available now from and other stories. This is such a beautifully written book, notably so. It is intelligent, and it is gorgeous, and it is unnerving. Beautiful nature writing, unsettling insight into humanity, how we relate to our environment, how we relate to the cosmos, how we relate to one another. It's about human nature. among other things. And Robin McLean is one of these people who has lived what I would call a big life. Unorthodox, fascinating, singular, courageous. She's worked as a lawyer. She has lived in the woods of Alaska, where she worked as a potter. She published a short story collection called Reptile House. I believe that was 2013. And she has twice been nominated, or has twice been a finalist, I should say, for the Flannery O'Connor Short Story Prize. Robin McLean now lives and teaches on a ranch up in the High Plains Desert of Central Nevada. It's wild. This is not like anything you've heard recently, I would imagine. You're going to hear us talk about all of it. Super interesting. And just a lot of fun. I loved meeting her and really enjoyed this book. So let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Robin McClain. And her debut novel, once again, is called Pity the Beast.
1: When I started this book, it wasn't at that point, a story about using story as weapon. It was the way I always start short fiction, long fiction, with a story that fascinates me, that evolves, and then you sort of find out what you're working on as you're writing. And I wrote a story that I was obsessed by. A friend of mine in Alaska who has sort of a wealth of insane Alaskan stories had told me about this neighbor whose mare had been a horse, a female horse, had been impregnated by this giant horse from the farm nearby. And there was a difficult labor and the mare was going to die. And all these neighbors came over to help, which is how it is in rural places. (laughs) People help out. They have clever ideas. They often care a lot about their neighbors and animals. And so I wrote this story and while I was writing that story because I don't really fix, stick, stick with the facts ever. I'm not interested in facts very much. Uh, one of the characters used a story as a weapon against one of the other characters against her sister. And yeah, I'm interested in the horse. I'm interested in the people. There's a lot of things I'm interested about that initiating story that's that kicks off this novel. But I really became fascinated with the idea of how narrative functions now and the idea of a story as a weapon and this idea of how we are using stories as modern or contemporary people. I think about stories, myths, fairy tales have always been, or my understanding is that they have always been to sort of help us behave better Started thinking: Have we come to a point in human history where stories are not functioning as well as, or as healthfully as they once were? And the book, of course, is a western. It's you know got people chasing through the mountains. There's it's a chase or a hunt or a search story. It's a story about uh, beasts about. Who is a beast? What's a beast? But I think I dealt with the action of the story, those plot elements, I guess you would call them, through exploration of story as help or story as hindrance to the way you're existing.
0: Okay. You know, this resonates with me, especially the part about whether or not we've come to a place in human history where you know, we have kind of lost our way. We're telling ourselves bad stories. And it's making me think of a conversation I had with, uh, an author named Steve Almond who wrote a book about the Trump era called bad stories. And the whole thing was structured around like this, you know, these really bad toxic stories that we've kind of been telling ourselves that have led us to a dark place. And, you know, that's one example. I think it's like one big example, but I think more broadly speaking, I hear what you're saying, and I wonder about the role that technology plays, you know, digital technology, the way that we disseminate bad stories, misinformation. Uh think of like, you know, COVID as one example. That that seems like a place where we've just been telling ourselves crazy story, crazy stories. So I don't know. I, I guess that, that speaks to me, and it's a really good question. Like, first of all, is it true? Like, have we really lost our way with stories to the point where you know, we're spiraling and then is there something we can do to fix it? You know, I guess tell ourselves better stories.
1: <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been talking about the book a lot. And I think about how a lot of people read books. I think that one of the things that this this book has made me think about is why narrative is what everybody talks about with books. That might sound strange, but I think about Don Quixote a lot. It's a book that was very, very important to me. And it's a thought. I think of Don Quixote as a thought, a big thought, with all these wild movements within the book. But you would never say it's simply about these two guys riding around. That is not what Don Quixote is about. And that made me start thinking that narrative is just one way of thinking and that when one writes a novel, one doesn't have to simply think about narrative and and plot and the characters riding around on horses that when I'm walking up my canyon, I call it my canyon up at Ike's Canyon, I am not thinking in a narrative way. I am ingesting the world through a much more diffuse way of thinking and that I think th- the book is for me to explore the other ways of thinking besides narrative. I feel feeling like narrative is very limited in some ways. And we want these sort of moral sort of boundaries on narrative and this sort of you know, we call this the arc, the narrative and, and time passing, that these sort of restrictions that are on narrative, I feel that maybe we need to open that up. And I hope that, that book, this book at least explores that possibility. And I hope my future work goes further with it. But I just feel that maybe what's happening, if we look at the round, round of the world and we say the world is really messed up right now and What can we possibly do about it? I think narrative is instinctual. It is the way humans tend to transmit information, which is why, say, during the Trump era, things got really, really crazy because there was no limit, there was no kind of restriction on story and the way people... It it just started being a free-for-all. So I just think maybe we have to... See that there are other ways to communicate ideas than a narrative. And the book, even though it is a narrative, is trying to live that, I guess.
0: Hmm. You know, it's interesting uh, reading about the reception that your book has gotten. Uh, I was seeing like phrases like uh, like crazy brilliance, insane glory. <laughs> Um and then uh JM Kuzsi if I'm pronouncing I should know how to pronounce this but not since Faulkner have I read american prose so bristling with life and particularity that's a hell of a quote
1: Yeah I like that one
0: How did that happen?
1: How did I how did that happen? I I wrote to him a couple of years ago I had been reading one of his books on the coast of California and it was a book called Snow, Slow Man and one of his characters from another book enters the novel at about page 76. And I'm a huge fan. I think you pronounce it code C. Okay. Uh, everyone pronounces it differently, but I, I listened to him say it on a YouTube video. But I, I really got freaked out by, because I didn't know what was going to happen in the book, because I didn't read the back of the book, because I never read the back of the book when it's him. I just read his book. And so when this character came in on page 76, I I had a sort of a a lightning bolt strike my head, which is, of course, why I read. I read to have my brain exploded by somebody else. And so he exploded my brain. And then I thought about it for a few months. And I decided that I should tell him that he exploded my brain. So I just wrote to him. And he wrote back and he said, yeah, well, you and I both thought that was pretty cool, but we were among the few. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a while ago. And then the whole process occurred where I found a publisher for my novel, which, you know, is hard and you don't know if it's really going to happen. And then it did happen. And then they say, who, who could we get to speak about this book and who do you know? And I you know, you think of all the people who might kindly read your book and might say something about it. And I said, well, I did write to my idol, J.M. Coetzee, a couple of years ago. And they said, well, you should you should send it to him. And, and so I sent it to him and he let me send him the book. And then he about a month later on the day that the the blurbs could go onto the back of the book, I got that line from him. Oh. So I had another lightning strike up onto my head.
0: I just went through that process. That's a kind of a humiliating process where you're asking for blurbs. You just feel like a shit, you know, or at least I did. Yes, I don't, I don't want pro- to totally project my experience onto you, but no, it is it's
1: horrible. Right. Nobody wants to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that's awfully generous. And it's, it strikes me just because I don't see JM Coetzee blurbs all that often.
1: No. So and I don't think he blurbs Americans much. I think he... At least my understanding is that he's trying to put more energy into international writers. And so I, I was, I just, I hope I can someday do something as meaningful to someone else.
0: Right. Right. That's a good lesson. I think when you go through this and somebody shows you that kind of generosity and you just go through the process, it hopefully softens you so that you, when you are approached, you can hopefully find the find a way to be generous but i say that and then i also feel uh a sense of sympathy for the people who get asked a ton like at some point you just get overloaded and you have to start saying no so it's tricky but kudos to you for getting that um you know recognition and such like a wonderfully glowing review and i say this as i was talking about the reception that the book has gotten and how people have had a hard time categorizing it gothic western echo know, echo feminist was a adjective that i saw you know used to describe the book and i'm wondering if that has uh, surprised you if you kind of expected there to be a varied response or for people to have i don't know like a hard time categorizing it or were you expecting people to be this excited?
1: <laughs> well, I, I've i been totally surprised by the reception because you live with a book for a really long time, and so it's sort of like your kid in a way, and my my writing is pretty wild. I've gotten, I've written short fiction that you know, the people close to me, friends or family, were really weirded out, and <laughs> and a really strong, like, why are you writing this weird stuff? But for me, I just it's just what I write. So I just think it's sort of normal. So I don't really I'm I'm I, I had to look up gothic. I mean, I should know what that word means, but I saw that and I said, What well, what does that mean exactly? Gothic. I don't know. I think about Dracula when I think of that word. And I guess it just means dark subjects where Bad Things Happen, which I say, oh, yeah, that's me for sure. Dark things or bad things happen. (laughs) I'm real interested in why bad things happen. But I also think the book is really funny. I think it's funny. And so I'm always surprised when people. Also, the labels for me don't really work at all, because I think of whatever project you're working on is you're trying to convey some idea, some thought to some speculative person now or in the future, or you're, you're, you're just trying to communicate something that's hard to communicate. So you use whatever tools you can think of to do that. And, and so if you borrow from, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey and also bother, borrow, borrow from a John Wayne movie – why would that then categorize the book in a particular way but i i do think that we live in a time where categories are extremely important to people people want categories they want to pitch you know sort of put something in a particular cubby hole because it's it's helpful there's so many books you know i don't want to read any bad books like i want to read the best books so i do rely on other people or reviews to sort of guide me cuz I want the best. <laughs> so I can understand why categories are helpful and important but I don't think they necessarily be a lot of times you'll read a book and you'll you'll have read something about it ahead of time or a film and you read it and you say oh that was good I liked it a lot but it has not what they said, <laughs> you know? And and everyone's going to read differently so they the way they're going to interpret some definition or how they're going to form a definition is it's just going to come out all over the map. And this book has a lot of potential to go all over the map. So it's probably going to go all over the map.
0: Yeah. Well, it's certainly unlike anything I've read. Yeah. Like full stop, like certainly recently, <laughs> That's <laughs> but
1: great. It, I love that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a strikingly unique book and, For people listening who might not have had a chance to read, like the basic plot setup, is this something that you could do? I mean, I could try, but I figure you wrote it. You'd probably do a better job. The
1: basic plot, sure, I can do that. So there's this couple. They're having a domestic problem because the wife, her name is Ginny, cheated on her husband with the guy from the ranch next door, and it's gotten out in the small northern Rocky Mountain town. And this is a town where everybody knows everybody is business and it's kind of titillating to hear about any kind of sexual misdeeds. And so there's this horse problem going on and the community comes over to help out and things get out of hand. A lot of drinking, a lot of hostility, a lot of sexism, probably. And there's a rape, a gang rape, and the woman is left for dead. And she's not dead. And she takes off into the mountains because she's kind of a mountain woman. And having her alive is not a good thing for the community because she, she might get a lot of people in trouble. So they chase her. So it becomes a chase story after that, which is about 60 pages in. So the next 300 pages are in the mountains. And this group of people who are chasing her, their relationships with each other and with her, and the land and themselves evolve in the pressure of this hunt.
0: Okay, is that that, way better for you? Yeah, that's way better than I could have done. I'm very pleased with myself. (laughs) Did write it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I want to talk about how badass every character in this book, to a to a man or to a woman seemed to me as I was reading. And of course I personalize everything. So all I could kept thinking was like, any one of these people could kill me with their bare hands. I would be left for dead first. I am the weak, (laughs) like, you know, that when you see a nature documentary and they're like, there's like the gazelles and then there's like the little gazelle who's like weaker. And that's the one that the, (laughs) you know, hyenas target or whatever. That was how I felt as I read this book. I'm the little (gasps) hyena or uh, the little, you know, uh, gazelle with a limp basically. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's awesome.
0: These are tough people that you're writing about and they are tough. They're hardened by the landscape, you know, like nature is something that they contend with every day in a way that I living in Los Angeles, you know, can't can't uh compare to. But you write very well and very authentically about tough people. Are you tough like they are?
1: Oh no. <laughs> I I uh somebody asked me about Ginny, the woman who is alone for most of this book and how am I like her? And I've said, well, she's about a thousand times tougher than I am. And but I I live amongst this kind of extremely tough people as I I have through most of my adult life. I lived in Alaska for 17 years and I've lived in rural New Hampshire on an island. <laughs> so I, I do like that kind of landscape. But I really admire rural people. You know, part of what's happening in America right now is there's this divide between the rural and the urban. And everybody, in my experience, thinks the other side is really stupid. If if you're talking to a city, you say, oh, those stupid hicks. And then you go to the, the, the rural places, and they think city people are stupid. And I'm. I float in between. I've, I. I'm a person who grew up in a city. I like cities, but I. I'm absolutely fascinated by urban. I mean, uh, rural places and rural people. I've taught in. I used to t- teach in in Montana, and I had students who really didn't really know what was going on in the world, but they could build their own car from scratch, for real, or who had grown up in a community where, this little four, four foot, eight inch young woman could the first day of class talking about, you know, introducing themselves, she would say, I can drive any vehicle that exists and fly planes or (laughs) drive a backhoe. I, I know how to drive some of that stuff now too, but I have absolutely a fascination and admiration for sort of this the frontier mentality of Alaska versus the Western mentality of where I live now in Nevada, which they're different, they're cousins of each other, or the New England old salt that I used to hike around, walk, snowshoe around on this lake, and then people out ice fishing. So I have a a love and devotion and fascination with with this this type of American. And they are much tougher than me. I might be tougher in some ways than them. It's a pretty hard thing to write a book. I've just done that. I've written three. You know, I've I've done some hard things, but I think I'm glad. I've never heard anybody say that. I love that 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 was your reaction to the book. I love the characters in the book. They they do kind of horrible things, and not kind of. They do some horrible things, and and I I. I admire them and have huge problems with them. And so that that energy of admiration and distaste was a big part of writing this book.
0: Yeah. Well well said. And I think that the you talk about the divide in America between urban and rural. I think it's actually the most meaningful divide right now. Like blue, red, Republican, Democrat, like those things don't seem nearly as real to me as the divide between urban and rural and i kind of i don't know i have a lot of respect and admiration for people who know how to do shit i don't know how to do anything you know what i'm saying like i might live in los angeles but like my phone tells me where to go everything's been automated you know what i'm saying i've lost some of that kind of I don't know, sense of self-reliance. Like I used to, you know, I'm 46. So I grew up like memorizing phone numbers. I don't have to do that anymore. I used to have to memorize directions on how to get someplace. Like, I don't know. I, I think that you lose some of that. And I think too, maybe more importantly, you lose contact with the natural world. You become, I think, oftentimes in a city environment, really, what is it? really distanced from any kind of silence like deep meaningful silence and especially as a writerly person you know that's a problem I, I think human beings benefit from having some contact with the natural world and I don't know silence can be awesome it can be really hard to find when you live in an urban environment so those are just some of the things but like I certainly I certainly don't look down my nose at a uh, the rural experience. Anyone who listens to this show knows I like often fantasize about moving away into some bucolic paradise, but I'm sure you could probably dissuade me of that notion too. It's it's, it's like not all heavenly.
1: It's not heavenly, but it's fairly heavenly. (laughs) I know that silence that you're talking about because I live in a place that's silent except for the natural sounds and, it's 40 miles of dirt road to get to what we call pavement, which that would be Highway 50 in Nevada, which they call the loneliest road in America. And it's silence is a very valuable thing. And if I, I so that's how I get to where I'm living now. And then I ride in a bunker. It's not quiet enough for me in the house. I had to go to this bunker that is concrete and I love these headphones and (laughs) like the sound of the headphones, but uh, people have insulated themselves from the natural world. We do that unconsciously because technology makes it easier for us to not have, you know, bugs in our house and squirrels in our attics and uh, we can virtually look at palm trees and things like that but to actually go out and walk in the wind and the cold and to see the tracks of the animals and it's it's a different thing and it's something that is i believe quite important to being a human being and if you don't have it i think that it's sort of like having some kind of vitamin deficiency i do not think it's good So uh, I think one of the things about this book, as you know, you know, when you're writing, you're not planning things out, but the way I look at the world or the way I live the world, it's just going to come out through my writing because that's how, that's how it works. You ingest information and then it comes out in your, your art or your, your projects. And the way I think of the natural world as an important power. I think of it as an important power that you to feel small is important. I think to feel vulnerable is important and to, you know, these characters in this book, yeah, they're really tough and they could shoot each other or kill each other, or one could have a heart attack at any moment, I guess. But the most threatening, most powerful element of the book is the most powerful element on the planet, and that is the environment that you're living in, and the temperature of the air, and the whether the water is available to you, and whether it just snowed on your head, and you don't have warm enough clothes on, and no matter what kind of insulation we put on ourselves with our minds, like we are safe, we are safe, we are safe, <laughs> we are not safe, and it's it is useful to think that way. That is not a bad thing to think we are we are animals we are mortal we cannot stop mortality we shouldn't stop mortality and the natural world rules even as we destroy it it still rules so i hope that my belief system filters through i'm not saying anybody should believe what i say but i want it to reflect in the work that i that I'm, that I make.
0: <laughs> okay. And I want to, we're going to talk later about like where you, where you have lived, where you currently live. Uh, I want to get to all that at length, but what I will say is I, is that as I was reading the book and then considering it after the fact, and then also like learning about you and you know, what you do and where you live and all the rest, it occurred to me that this book, you know, we talked about how it's like, uh, people have had a hard time Kind of wrapping their heads around it or grab, you know you're writing in a profound silence at a remove from society that distinguishes you among almost all of your peers most writers what they live in like a cultural capital they're in brooklyn or they're in san francisco or los angeles or chicago not everyone but generally you live 50 miles from a paved road and you can see the Milky Way. There's no light pollution where you live. So you can look up in the sky and see the heavens. It, it it seems it makes sense to me that this book would have been written in those physical circumstances and like psychological circumstances, you know, the resulting psychological circumstances. Does that you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I do. And I mean people want to come to remote places and write, but you have to be in a remote place and write, and you you have to accept those feelings of the vast. You know, you look up and see the Milky Way. It's it will change your brain. I mean, I worked in Alaska. I, I lived in Alaska, and I worked as a potter in an Aspen forest where you could not see a light or hear a road for ten years. I made pottery like that. Now I'd go walk up this hill and with my dog, and there's no cell phones if you If you got injured, you're gonna be dead because hypothermia and stuff and it changes your brain to live like that to live more around aspen leaves and coyotes or wolves in, in the case of Alaska. You're not confused about what's going on. You you understand you are just the same as them, and that position must inform your writing. There's no way it wouldn't inform your writing if you're if you're in Brooklyn and you've got paved streets around and high buildings that will influence your writing. <laughs> you know, you're going, you should let it whatever atmosphere you're living in. But yeah, I live in an extreme place for someone doing what I'm doing. If I was a cattle rancher, I would not be, it's the perfect place to be a cattle rancher. Uh, but I'm doing something unusual. And I, when I first moved out there, I am politically a very much minority out there. i Probably the only person in a 200 mile radius, well, maybe not 200 miles, but who maybe votes the way I do. And I thought to myself, maybe I can't do that because my political positions are important to me. I want to have some people to talk to sometimes. But I just decided to view myself as an alien. If I was going to an alien planet, How would you behave if people were saying things that you disagree with? Would you get in fights with them all the time? Or would you listen and observe and think about what they're saying in relation to where they are and what they're doing? And that's been something I've been trying to do for a while and certainly all the time that I was working on this book. So it's a place of discomfort in some ways to be in a place where you could die if you twist your ankle and you didn't bring water with you you could die (laughs) and I kind of take the position that that is always the case for every human everywhere but you forget it and if I were to be saved or need help it will be by someone who I disagree with on almost everything, except for that you should help someone when you, they need help. And those are things that have been really powerful for me. And I hope all of those things come in to the way I live as a human being. Cause I, I think of living and writing as sort of the same. You could just switch those words around.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of hungry for a book. I was telling another friend of mine uh, an author named Pam Houston I don't know if you know her but she's been on this show yeah. I was kind of like I was like I, I want you to write about the urban rural divide and like what it's what it's like to be like you say like an alien or at least to feel like one who's living in this place where you're kind of an outlier and what that experience is like and what it teaches you I think it's probably healthy you know to be I think every one of us should spend time in a place where we're surrounded by people who disagree with us. (laughs) Uh, I agree. I totally
1: think that's true. Like they used to have exchange students, you know, you'd have somebody come live with you from Germany and, or we, we had them when we were kids and somebody else, we had friends who went to some other country. And if, if we did that, it would be good for our country now if we did some exchanges.
0: Yeah. Like yeah. going both ways. Like people who live in yeah. cities, like people from New York need to get out to uh the Great Basin and spend some time yep. like wrangling cattle yep. or whatever. And people who live in the Great Basin need to get down to uh Bushwick.
1: <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and, you know. the, and the and the Great Basin people when you know it would be beneficial to everybody because all the things that were broken in your house in the city would get fixed. Right. You know? That's the first <laughs> thing the people would do is say oh this doorknob is loose brad let me where's your screwdriver and you know coming the other direction you know i i bring something to it too and i feel very valued in that place where i live even though i am i i don't even eat meat i don't eat meat and i'll I'll have neighbors come over with a They live twenty five miles away, but their neighbors they come over with a cooler full of meat because they just butchered a cow and they're gonna grill it. And they'll joke around, Robin, you want you want one of these steaks? Like they they know that I'm not gonna eat the steak. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know. I, I feel so much I feel really accepted, even though I'm accepted as somebody who does not agree. And I think does, do people in this country know that that's possible anymore? When I was growing up, that was normal. People hung out with folks of different backgrounds and belief systems, but I feel like it's gotten very, very polarized. But I am experimenting in anti-polarization.
0: I'm glad you are. So I'm glad you're on those front lines doing that because we need more <laughs> of it, honestly. And I'm a vegetarian as well. My grandfather was a butcher, for God's sakes. My <laughs> parents are from Louisiana. I have Cajun blood. Like I go down there for visits and I'm like the weird vegan from LA. <laughs> you can imagine right. you know, so I know what that is like to be at like the the crawfish broil and I'm like over there nibbling on whatever like a cracker, you know, whatever they make available to me.
1: There's usually potatoes somewhere.
0: Somewhere, but they're slathered in something in Louisiana, you know. But yeah. the food tastes great. I gotta say, yeah. you know, no knock on the cuisine. But um, I want to talk about the time. I feel like that, you know, this is re- this is a related question, or you know, a related thought to what I was saying when I was like, this book feels like it only could have been written by somebody who had access to the silence that you have access to and the space that you have access to and the contact with the natural world that you have access to. This book also does interesting things with time in the sense that I had a hard time placing it. I knew it was kind of contemporary and yet it felt like it could have taken place like 200 years ago has like a kind of cosmic vibe and then, like all of a sudden, one of the characters will be like eating milk duds, which I loved because I love milk duds. I got a cop to that as a vegetarian. <laughs> I, I will eat a milk dud at Halloween. I'm sorry, I can't resist. But it just it was. I I I appreciate that as a creative choice. Maybe the writerly part of me. I was like, wow, milk duds. That's not an accident. Like, can you just talk about time and like those choices?
1: Well, I mean the western. We tend to think of it as a 150 years ago, you know, a little bit after the civil war or a little before I was very concerned about the book, not being back in time. I also didn't want any cell phones in it. So I had to, for some reason I was really focused on that. I did not want to deal with cell phones. So I had to get them off the cell phone grid, but the the book I wanted the book to have a pretty big time frame. I wanted the book to feel like a large time frame because another thing about living where I do, whether that's in Nevada or Alaska is this way too is that you can sort of time travel by looking out your window. The the landscape that you're seeing, you know, is a very ancient one. It will outlive you. You think about that kind of thing. Um 10,000 years ago it looked the same. You know, maybe that crag at that mountain might be a little bit different. Uh the foliage in the desert certainly is different from 150 years ago because the cows eat up a lot of the native grasses and stuff. But I wanted the book to be big and so how do you do that? It's pretty easy to go backwards in time and people accept backwards movement in time because you have history and you have geology. And we see that a lot. I wanted it to not just be backwards in time, but I wanted to be forward in time too. And part of why I wanted time to be big is that I. this goes back to this idea of the narrative being a suspect classification for me right now, is that I, of course, you got to have these characters and things happening in the story and time passing, but I did not want that to be the only thing that the reader was experiencing. I want the book to be about more than the usual things that are in narrative people and action and cause and effect. And time is one way to do that. I thought a lot about frame. You think about how visual artists make that object in the middle smaller. They might make a big frame. Uh, And so a lot of my thinking about time had to do with sort of architecture and so there is there are aspects of the book book that move as you know forward in time that hopefully even out the the size of the frame of the book i i don't know if that's exactly what you're asking but hopefully that's a start
0: yeah i think it's just like just the choice to make it nebulous You know, that was interesting to me. I also appreciate the fact that there were no cell phones in it. Uh, This is, (laughs) you know, I I say this often, but this podcast is the one arena of my life where there are no cell phones, which is why I've been doing it for 10 years, I think. Like, it's the one place where I can get away from that. Even though I'm talking to you over a computer, it's just like undivided attention and no texting or I don't know. They they drive me nuts. Cell phones. Um, yes. they drive us all nuts, whether we know it or not, but you talk too about time in your book and the way that things move, I guess I would say the way that they move narratively, though. I know that this is a sore subject for you, <laughs> uh, the word narrative, but you know, they're like your book, I, it does wild things it, like you get inside the heads of mules in certain sections of the book. There is um, a recurring, and these are recurring motifs, or they, they recur throughout the throughout the novel. There's a, I believe, is it a cedar census um, that mm-hmm. takes place in the year 2179. There are, like, maybe my favorite recurring thing is these lessons from Granny, uh, who might be the most badass character in the whole book. Granny could kill all of these people and end this, Absolutely. unfortunately she's no longer, I think, with us when the action <laughs> takes place, but granny is a memorable character. And uh, I don't know, just a tough, wise person. And so that's another aspect I think, where you're taking chances creatively, like, and, and moving away from a central narrative or ex- accenting that central narrative with this stuff. It feels like a unique choice. I feel like most people would just stick to the chase, you know. Can you talk about why you added these things, like the the mules, like you're getting inside the head uh, the heads of animals. I always appreciate that. I think as an animal lover and a vegetarian, <laughs> I love it whenever the consequences of human activity are considered through the lens of nearby animals, you know, whether they're domesticated or wild. Um, that's something that doesn't happen often enough in human storytelling.
1: Well, in recent, I think in a lot of old stories, animals get sort of equal time and myths and fairy tales. I feel it's just an inaccuracy to have a pack train with a bunch of mules hauling a bunch of stuff around and to not give them a little bit of time. But uh, the mules, you know, you you do have these voices in your head as saying, oh, some editor will never tolerate this. Or some of my first readers would say, well, I love the book, but what if somebody wants to cut this out or that out? And you have to kind of think that those are sort of these risky sections that, you know, what are you going to do about it? And to me, I thought, well, the book is crazy enough that if somebody wants it, they're probably going to want all of it. But I think, you know, people talk about realism and I, I, the way most people talk about realism, I would not consider myself a realist writer, but to leave out the thoughts of animals is, to me and inaccuracy. So I think of it almost in a craft perspective, even though there's a lot of people that would disagree about that, but it's all about how big the world is that you're trying to convey. And I live amongst wild animals. I am a minority species where I live by far. The wild horses walk in, to the ranch where I live and drink and walk out again. They do not live there. They do not want to live there. If you lock them in, they would bust their way out. They have family groups that an amateur, because I'm an amateur, I can see their family groups and how they interact. I've seen horses help the young of other herds. They, I, I'm not Jane Goodall or something. It's absolutely obvious of that there's whole lives and whole worlds going on for these other beings that humans just leave out all the time and i think that is got some serious ramifications for how we run the world this is not particularly political book i don't think although i am a very political person so it's probably leeches through but for me it's just Absurd to not consider how other beings might be experiencing what is happening in a story. And to include them, allowed new angles on the story that I didn't know about before. So it's good material. That's kind of how I see it. And if there's some people who are going to not accept it because they're not human speaking and for whatever reason, people only think humans should speak in books, I guess, but I, and I haven't really done that before. That was sort of a new thing for me, but I like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like... And I, I, uh, I feel like it's interesting. I feel like it's interesting how when you live in the city, like I've been saying, you get divorced from the natural world. It's easy to sort of get tunnel vision and to get lost inside a concrete jungle or, you know, this world of constant distraction that you live in and to be out of touch with, say, what's going on with wild animals or with the animals that share our earth and to be divorced from like a deep understanding of how the consequences of our actions affect other species. So probably an obvious thought when you think about like urban life in the modern world. What I find equally interesting is how oftentimes, you know, I've had limited exchanges with people who like live on farms or grew up on farms or live in a place like you live, which is like way out and, you know, where you have close contact. Often I will find that like I'm more sensitive (laughs) almost to an absurd degree to the plight of animals and the suffering of animals than people who live in a rural environment. There can be a desensitization ization that happens there as well because it's like you know it's how they make their living they have to deal with cows every day whereas like i just think they're like really peaceful and cute when they eat their grass or whatever you know like you know what i'm saying like and this yes. comes this comes across very well in the writing uh or in the novel which is the way that people who live out in like rural wherever can be very matter of fact and brutal when it comes to their dealings with animals,
1: sure I mean you know, if you're a cattle rancher, your job is to birth cows, feed them, and send them off to the slaughterhouse That's how you feed your family and you know the other obvious hypocrisy is that you aren't one of them, but most people who are horrified by a slaughterhouse or killing an animal are horrified while they're eating a hamburger, you know, they're, they, they don't want to get their hands dirty and they're horrified by killing, but they're not horrified by eating. And, and yet they're kind of blaming the guy out in the rural area who's going to butcher the cow. So I don't know. There's a lot of complexity slash hypocrisy going on. You know, the beginning of the book has this horse that's in distress. And to me, the, the, the people's concern for the animal is is a valid thing. It's a really true thing. People care a lot about animals, but to a point. And I just think, you know, when we, we killed off all the buffalo 150 years ago, At the same time, women could not vote. Uh, At the same time, they were slaves. I mean, there's this pattern of of just dismissing other beings. And I can vote now and I can be interviewed by you for a podcast or teach college. And it's illegal to be officially a slave in the United States and things like that. (laughs) And yet we are still putting objectification or objectifying other beings because perhaps it's inconvenient right now to stop objectifying them. And I don't know if I'm kind of going off of the subject that you brought up, but I just think there's massive hypocrisy or I would say narrative convenience in a lot of the things that we're doing regarding animals. And I believe in a couple hundred years the way we are interacting with animals will be as horrifying as how we used to treat women, and i I think that's I believe that will happen if we survive that long
0: yeah no i've 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 like entertained similar thoughts where it's like you you know we talk about like medieval times and the way they like drew and quartered people, <laughs> like you know all these like horrific ways that they tortured prisoners and human beings and and whatnot. And I think, yeah, we're going to hopefully, if we survive as a species, get to a place, I think we almost have to get to a place where we have a much deeper respect for other species and for the flora, you know, not just animal species, but just our entire natural environment and to see it as inextricable from ourselves. And, you know, for, for too long, we've been living as though we are somehow separate and elevated.
1: And, yeah. And, you if you th- if you think about if narrative is how we communicate and these stories you have to have a plot and you have to have arc and you have to have c- conflict and this and that these these things and and we it's it's such a rigid system that we seem to have in place and you you get people advise you on it and editors and the whole thing and that is how we think if you say this is actually how we're thinking we think in these narrative arcs with these rules if we don't start putting some other elements in to r- sort of recognize what we're not thinking about because of this narrative structure how are we going to ever break out of it so to me to throw some talking mules the ho- there's some horses that talk as you know in the book also uh the the audiobook narrator he called me up one day because he was coming up with a voice for the yellow horse, which it was awesome. But anyway, that's the digression. (laughs) But if we do not put new, broader ideas of what we want to think about in our stories, if it's illegal to put horse thoughts or mule thoughts in a story or really crazy to do that, how are we actually ever going to get to the point where we recognize animals or other beings as valuable if they're not allowed to be part of the narration And so I think, I think there's a lot of things, uh, I feel like maybe narration is narrative is, is due for some expansion. And that's what I've been thinking about for a little while.
0: Okay. And it's worth noting too, that the entire book, I believe unfolds outside with the exception of like the old Swedes lodge, maybe I'm trying to think well,
1: of any. Well, he, yeah, she does go in and take a sort of, she's inside the old Swedes cabin for maybe a few minutes. And then there was a flashback to, uh, before the, the chase. But other than that, it's entirely outside, 100% outside, which I think is super cool. So I'm glad you brought that up. Cause not everybody thinks it's as cool as I do
0: well, and I mean, I have not read too many books in recent memory <laughs> that take place entirely outside. It's worth flagging <laughs> and it, there's also you know the the book is about uh, in large part like what it, like wh- who's a beast, what does it mean to be a beast and you are unflinching in your depictions of violence and brutality and kind of the harshness of the natural world, you know, and all of its beauty and majesty, but also in all of its like cruelties, you know, it can be a pretty brutal place, um, where we live. And it's not like, like it's not off to the side in this book. It's center stage. Can you talk about writing about brutality and violence and like your approach to that, um, and the choices that you made in those scenes and
1: scenarios? Well, I have gotten a lot of note. I've gotten a lot of note in the past for being write about violence that I write about violence, which as I'm writing, I don't think of myself as somebody who's writing about violence. I'm writing about the things that I see that bug me or, that mystify me. That's what I write about, things that I do not understand. And I don't like writing violence. There's a couple of scenes in the book that are pretty hard for me to even read later Then, I mean, really hard for me to read. I may never read them again. I don't want to read them again. I have thought about this a lot because when i watched Movies, for example, if I watch like a Die Hard movie or a James Bond movie, there's people who are just wiped out in the opening sequence, you know, in the bazaar in Mexico in a James Bond movie. And nobody gives the James Bond movie. They don't say the James Bond movie is about. Like what a violent movie. They don't do that. So there's something about how I'm writing those violent scenes that are is obviously coming across differently than when they blow up a, a airplane full of five hundred people and then just go to the next scene. And I think what I'm interested in doing obviously is looking very carefully at those who are wiped out or the I do not, I guess I'm interested enough so that I portray the violence in a way that is just more disturbing to people than if they watch James Bond or they watch a Die Hard movie. And I don't actually know how that is. I don't actually, I cannot tell you why, but I can tell you that I do not want to look away from it or switch scenes because that is my subject matter. So if I were to look away from the rape or look away from the death of a horse or, you know, death, basically (laughs) look away from death or injury to other beings, then I would not be writing about what I am mystified by. So I try to depict it in a way that reflects my mystification or my disturbed position, seeing terrible things happen. Uh, Somebody asked me about this the other day, and I I don't really know what would happen if I had those experiences happen to me. But as a novelist, you're doing a, a thought experiment, and I... I want it to be accurate so that I can learn from it somehow. I mean, I think that's what I'm doing when I write. I am trying to learn, and I'm trying to learn from the thing that is most inexplicable and that those things are the hard parts to write as well as why I'm doing it.
0: Yeah, well said, and I think we've all been so conditioned by contemporary film and television, especially to expect certain things from our violence and brutality. You know, like you say, oh, it's just going to be a scene in the opening act of the James Bond movie where, you know, 500 people die or whatever it is that happens. And we're conditioned to just like bounce to the next thing. And you're cutting against that tendency, which I think is healthy. Like we need to slow down and look at the brutality, especially that, you know, it's, we need to slow down period, but I think it's like you get inside like actual human violence, you know, something really hardcore like that. And it's something we would all, it's something we need to look at closely. So I'm glad that you did it. I'm glad that you made that choice. And I think it can be easy. Like I say this personally, like it can be easy to sort of simulate The kind of approach to violence that i just described because it's so like hardwired into me now having watched a million movies and tv shows so i think it's good for literature maybe in particular to move in the other direction
1: yeah i agree and i mean it's violence as entertainment if you go to rome and you go to the coliseum we all know that humans have been interested in violence as entertainment for a long time and i think that is a subject a subject matter for me and i am not advocating for violence and i I don't think that i engage in those scenes or those plot items for entertainment and so something about the way i portray them is very disturbing for people in a way that the james bond movie is not but I leave that to somebody else to figure it out. And I don't know if it's because I'm a woman. I think especially my first book came out and, you know, bad shit happens in that one, too, because that's what I'm interested in. And people would say, when are you going to write nicer stories or why are you thinking about these dark things? And I, I just think I do not believe that men get that as much from from people and but it hasn't stopped me, and I've gotten enough support from people who who encourage me and, and help my work along, and, and the violent part of it doesn't come up. They view it as a, if you're going to write about why people do bad things, then there's going to be some bad shit that happens. <laughs> it's a prerequisite. You cannot have that conversation with yourself or anyone else without the bad shit happening. Hmm.
0: I want to talk about humor. Like let's juxtapose this because <laughs> your book is very funny and it yeah. has, here's what it, here's what it reminded me of. I'm sure you've heard this before, but like Cormac McCarthy, I'm thinking of the Coen brothers adaptation of No Country for Old Men. Like I kept kind of hearing the cadence of like Tommy Lee Jones's character, like that banter between Tommy Lee Jones and his deputy like it's not exactly that but it just it's a cousin to that let's put it that way and you have a very good ear for dialect and you have these these like this posse that's out hunting this woman and there's a lot of downtime <laughs> you know like there's like campfires and you know like sitting there in shitty weather or whatever it is and there's all this great banter that happens that gets really philosophical uh it gets like kind of deep in a sideways kind of way and that's another interesting creative choice (laughs) like you know like i guess does that does that reflect your actual lived experience you know what i'm saying is that the way that that conversation gets out in the great basin where you live uh you know when people are kind of hanging out totally
1: yeah absolutely just I hope that I did a good job with that because the the beauty and the color of the language and the jokes and the cleverness and the, uh, it's, it blows my mind. It's it. I absolutely adore just sitting around listening to people in in the same way it was in Alaska, the same way in, in New Hampshire, just, Cleverness and hilarious conversations, and I mean, some of the some of the lines in that book I just stole from somebody, you
0: know, sure, <laughs> over
1: yeah. at the house. <laughs> you write it down. I would run over and write it down really fast. Uh, yeah, so it's absolutely an accurate depiction of hilarious, clever, diverse interesting rural people i'm glad you thought it was funny i think the book is i think all of my writing is really funny as i think i mentioned and some people don't think so so it's a sound thing i i i want somebody to put a sticker on the outside of the book that says please read me slow uh, <laughs> because if you read it too fast i don't think you'll get the the because i i really think the characters are quite different from each other and they have predictable sense of humor and but yeah cowboy jokes i've been i've i've been witness to a about a nine hour cowboy joke off where they just trade jokes for all day all day you know whatever is going on the jokes you know they switch from blonde jokes to you know minister jokes i mean it's just mind-blowing and educated person i have all these degrees and stuff like that and i just shut my mouth and just want to hear what everybody else says because uh that was the other thing if you hang out with cowboys which i do now is that they they have lots to say about the western genre whether it's film or books and they'll say oh that those movies get it all wrong they get it all wrong like you you never would have a pack train like that or have you seen how they shoot in the movies you know they do it all wrong I mean they they're very aware of the genre and it's it's mistakes and um and so I just uh one of the things that I think that the Western, especially the movie, when people think of it, is that there's this riding around fast. And I've had cowboys say, well, you would never ride around fast. And so one of the things I was worried about this book is that they're not riding around fast anywhere. They're just kind of, you know, da doon da (laughs) doon da-dun, along. And and they're telling jokes because they're riding on the horses and, you know, sitting around at the end of the day by the fire. And it's slow and even though I'm like, this is maybe not going to fly, but I think it's accurate. And, uh, so I had some fun learning about what it would be like on a trip like this. Although, you know, could write a different story, write them faster, but yeah. So
0: I, I think it adds to the sense of menace, um, that kind of builds as you go. You you get the feeling as a reader, or at least I did, that this is building towards something not so great. And yet, you have these people in their downtime, like, you know, cracking wise around the fire in a really, <laughs> in like a really funny way. And like, that felt true to life to me. And yeah. what it does, I think, is that it just makes you realize like how thin the barrier is between good and evil, you know, and the way that these two things can happen kind of like simultaneously almost, you know, where you have people talking in a way that's like totally charming and funny. And then the next minute they're doing things that are not the least bit charming. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And I I guess that's probably at least to some degree what you were going for.
1: Well, I mean the banality of evil, you know, is we, we live in a time where, there's a lot of critique going on for other people and other people are always doing something really, really bad. And, you know, everyone's pointing fingers at each other, but this idea that the, the evil that we do, most of us are not aware of it. We, we choose not to examine it. So I wanted the characters to be lifelike in that way. Um, that, they're they're doing evil and they're also funny and they have feelings and they're they're still human. I wanted that complexity because I think that's that's accurate and I hope that it makes it makes me think about what am I doing that I would that I shouldn't be doing. You know what I'm saying?
0: What I, what I want to add though too is that like these are learned people in a way that might or not even might in a way that seems to differentiate itself from like a learned person in like a cultural capital living in urban existence. There's a lot of talk now with like this infrastructure bill that's passing, how they're going to close the digital divide. And like, I appreciate that. Like I understand how people from a practical perspective could benefit from better Wi-Fi. Part of me is like, no, don't bridge it. <laughs> like let's keep some places where people don't have access to this because I don't know. I I just feel like there's like a, it's a different kind of intelligence to not be constantly looking at a phone, to not live in a place where like you could go weeks without being online. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know, to read lots of books. I'm probably stating something that a lot of us feel or have rambled about at some point, but uh, do you know what I'm getting at?
1: I, I think about those kinds of things, too, about what does it do that we're kind of all addicted to these little devices that we hold in our hands and we get all this information from these websites that are God knows where they come from. Whereas if you live in the desert, um, you you see death a lot. You know, you see, you know, people used to have if your grandmother died, they might be laid out in the house or you would see the death and you would see maybe clean the body. We, we don't do that. We're really, really far away from death. People who live in more remote areas may be more, I'm closer to death because I'll see dead things. <laughs> I'll see carcasses or if it's really, really hot, something will die. And so I think that there is, there's a lot to be said for that kind of atmosphere sort of, what kind of things you can learn from that. But I think what I believe you're talking about, people are real interested in information. The information is this thing that we've been obsessed with for a while. And then people are also obsessed with knowledge and how that relates to information. But I think we have forgotten all about wisdom. And wisdom is, to me, the most important thing. And you have to take information and knowledge and those two things maybe with experience produce wisdom and that is what i feel what i see from i really admire a wise person yes (laughs) and you have to have lived and had some trouble to get wisdom you cannot get it from information or knowledge you have to have experience and you have to maybe have some suffering to achieve wisdom. And no one is talking about wisdom anymore. But I think that maybe what you're talking about is some of the the conversations that get in on this book or the conversations that I witnessed, they come from wise people. They might not be the best people in the world because I don't even believe in that kind of thing, but they are wise and they know things that's that are not knowledge it's not information it's not knowledge it's knowing something ancient maybe that's about living that we have lost track of because we're obsessed with things like money or information or efficiency or or knowledge even or degrees or 401ks but you know we're all gonna die in the end and and if you live in places like that, you have to see that you're gonna, we're going to die. Like, you never get to escape that because that horse just died on the side of the road or, you know, somebody's hunting and they have a deer strung up at the back of their car. Like, it's death. It's just right there all the time. Kind of in the William Faulkner way, like where you're talking about hauling your mother's body through something like a hurricane and all the things that, you feel to achieve this weird thing to bury her in that County. And to me, that book is, is dealing in, in wisdom. And I don't think, I don't think we're talking about wisdom and a much, but I hope that I am trying to interact in that world of wisdom, which is how myths live in that world. And, Life and death, and people being really stupid or not very good. Wisdom is something that maybe can get you through where nothing else can.
0: And what about God, or like, what does the deputy call it? Does he call like the big window? Like like the
1: big window, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm interested to know. I mean, this this filters into the to the novel, but with like the life that you've led. And are currently leading out there and the contact that you have. Just curious, like what your angle is on all that. I do ask people about this on this show. I used to do it more often, but it seems it just comes to mind with you. Like what, where do you, like, what's going to happen when we die? Like, (laughs) like, what do you, uh, what is your take on all of it? Do you have like a defined take or.
1: Well, I am not a religious person at all. I see what happens I, I used to, when I used to live in Alaska, these je- there's like I think they were Jehovah's Witness. I can't remember. They used to come up to my house because I like to talk to them and they would hang out and we would talk. And I used to say, Well, what about the grass dying? Like what happens when the grass dies? Or what happens when, when my dog dies? And if they couldn't come up with something that equated my death their death with the dog's death of the grass's death then I move on from that because to me I see what happens when the grass dies I see what happens when my dog dies I see what happens when the bird dies so I I feel my the cells of my body are the same as the cells of the body of the grass it's just that my mind which is a narrative mind which can see that I'm going to die has a really, really hard time with what happens when you die. So we make up a bunch of stuff that the grass and the dog don't have to do or the horse doesn't because they don't worry about it. We worry about it because we're narrative beings, so we have to make up all the stuff. So I, I, don't, I know what's going to happen to me when I die. What I think that humans get from being narrative beings is that we get this interaction with the vast and I do believe we're born with an interaction with the vast which is why we build cathedrals and why we like walking in old growth forests and looking at the Milky Way we like I like to look at the Milky Way it's it's moving in a way I do not have words for and so I think you know we I think that it's a good thing to have a, a reverence for the vast. And and so, you know, people call that vast different things. So somebody, the deputy calls it the big window. Somebody else might call that being God. Some else, you know, Saul has a, a prayer where he's great spirit. God, whoever you are. <laughs> whatever you want to call it. I, I don't really care what you call it. I call it, I think of it the, as the vast and the feeling of interaction with time and space and and my molecules are the same as other beings and they will disintegrate and rejoin with other beings and that's it. That's what I think.
0: Okay, that's a good answer. I mean, I'm I'm kind of on board. That feels like, it's, it's, it seems like based in logic, right? Like we're we're all made of the same stuff things seem to move in circles you know in the universe right there's cycles to life and death and I also like this idea that like we're constantly dying you know what I'm saying like the cells of our body are constantly shedding and dying and rejuvenating so like we think of death as like this singular moment when it's happening constantly that's helpful for me to remember
1: my mom died a couple of years ago, and I was there when she died. I've been there when other beings have died, so it wasn't the first time. But it really struck me of how slight the difference between her being alive and not being alive it was this moment in time. And on one side, she existed, and the other side, she didn't exist. And it's it was this tiny moment that felt vast. And this idea of scale and glorious <laughs> energy changing in front of me or in this in the same space, uh, it was profound for me to be there for that. And I would like, you know, these people who work in the hospice where she died. They live in that all the time. They choose to be around that all the time. And I'm very interested in those people who seek to be around that that moment, or it's sort of like somebody who wants to go hang out in St. Paul's and Rome, or or the hard, you know, the 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 redwoods, or the desert where I live, where you can actually see the ground. You know, in Alaska, you couldn't see the ground because there's green everywhere. In the desert, you can see it for uh, so far in every direction, and and it's dry, and it's it looks like Nothing could ever live there, and there's all these badass animals that live there just fine. And I I think that one of the things about living in a place like that is that it it's just amazing. It just blows your mind that animals that plants can survive in such a different difficult landscape. Same thing with Alaska with these moose that had to walk through this deep snow and I have become comfortable with not understanding things. (laughs) That is what's happened by living in a place like that. I've become comfortable with like, uh, man, I have no idea how that works. And to get older and instead of being more understanding more, I feel like I understand less, but I'm more comfortable with understanding less. Yeah. which may be wisdom I don't
0: know. <laughs> maybe or, you know i think he like when you get I, like i like to joke like when you're wrong as often as i am wrong and like you've been humbled enough yeah. at some point like your default mode just becomes like i have no fucking idea like i'm just gonna be uncertain Yep. and live there yep. uh i want to talk biographically before we part ways because you've t- you know you've touched on it you've lived pretty wild life you've lived up in alaska as a potter and went in what an aspen forest like yep you've you basically have spent your adult life living in what people would characterize as like the middle of nowhere right i mean yes so yes. where let's start at the beginning where are you originally from
1: you're gonna laugh because of what you just said but i grew up in peoria illinois which uh-huh. is uh you know, back in the vaudeville days, they would say, would it play in Peoria because it was considered the most average place that you could go to. So if it if people liked your show in Peoria, Illinois, then they would like it in New York and everywhere. And I, I grew up I was born in Chicago. I grew up in Peoria and uh, then I went to college on the East Coast and then I went to law school in Champaign, Illinois, and then I hated law school. With the passion, and decided to move to Alaska. I had had Alaska in my brain for a while. Why? And I got a job. Well, I I don't know why. This is one of these things I don't understand. It was I have met lots of people in Alaska who had this though, where you just the word Alaska stimulated a energizing idea. <laughs> You just I just wanted to go. I I loved the idea of Alaska. And so I got this job with a, a judge up there because I was getting out of law school. And I started doing pottery while I was clerking for this judge. And then I quit my federal clerkship and became a potter <laughs> and moved to the middle of nowhere. And it was just... Um, luckily, I had parents who... Would just say, as long as you have health insurance, we don't care what you do. Really, really very cool parents. And um, and Alaska was absolutely fascinating for me. I think if you come from Peoria, Illinois, I don't know where you're from. Do you from, are you from the Midwest?
0: Uh, yeah, I was born in Milwaukee and then I also okay, lived in, I also heard lived that in accent. Yeah, I lived in Indiana for a long time. Okay. Not not far I, from like Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel you on the Peoria, like that sort of, uh, I know the landscape from which you hail.
1: Yes. Okay. So it's, I heard that accent. I said, he's got to be from the Midwest, but yeah, I think what happens if from the Midwest and you can concur or not is that you think every place else is much cooler and that everybody else is cooler and smarter than you. And if my dad I would always say that every person that you meet has something to teach you and it's your job to find out what it is. So if you combine, you know, a Peoria, Illinois, like, well, I'm the least cool person that has ever walked the earth with my dad's philosophy, then you go to Alaska where everyone is a genius like i don't care where they went to college or they went to high school or whether they graduated from their 8th grade they are geniuses they know how to do everything they they want to do everything they're interested in everything you're doing they're just information vacuum cleaners and everything that they say blew my mind so i i was captivated instantly by alaska and everyone You know, I was a potter, so what that means is you're sitting there and you're throwing pots, and then you you sign up for some weird little craft fair in some weird little town, 700 miles away. You have to drive through Canada, and I had this little pickup truck, and you load up all these boxes and drive down the Alcan with your boxes of pottery and get there and change the tire, and then the people there are glass blowers or wood carvers, and or and you know Taj Mahal might be there playing music. I mean it was just this most magical, crazy life to go from law school in champagne to, you know, pottery girl. And so I, I my my partner at the time, we built a house in the middle of the woods and and I would hike up this mountain and I would take a little sled and in the wintertime I would sled a mile down this mountain like a luge. I mean nobody was there. I didn't have any Nobody was there. He's just enjoying this thing that you can do. And <laughs> I just had a blast. I had a wow. blast. And wow. everybody was having fun. And then I always say, I it's not like my life has been perfect, because it definitely has not been perfect. But I do not I challenge people that I uh, to find someone who's had more fun than me. I kind of have fun a lot. <laughs> so then you know there's not to say that bad shit has not happened because it has of course happened but I gravitate towards fun I think and and things that I don't know about especially if they're involving beautiful nature because I love to be outside (laughs) and anyway so I've, I've had a lot of fun
0: that's awesome and now you're out in the great Basin living at Ike's Canyon Ranch. Is that what you call it?
1: Ike's Canyon Ranch. And I can see an extinct geyser from the front porch. You know, of course, you know, if you can, (laughs) you know, in the winter months, I'll send you a picture. You can see the smoke rising from this little geyser that's left over from the Yellowstone formation. And, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere and you think you never see anyone, but there's just crazy neighbors stopping by all the time and, Californians the summer are trying to get away from smoke and cities and I don't know I'm just the luckiest person you've ever met Brett.
0: <laughs> oh, wow All Right I'm glad to finally meet you Can you tell me where Ike's Canyon ran? I mean we know it's the middle of nowhere but where is the middle of nowhere
1: Okay So If You Put Your Finger On The Center Of Nevada Like If You Look On The Net The Map You Put Your Finger On The Center You You Probably Have Your Finger On Ike's Canyon But It's In The Monitor Valley It's named after the monitor. uh, It was a ironclad ship in the Civil War. Because Nevada was formed during the Civil War, became a state. So it's the Monitor Valley. It's it's the center valley of three big valleys in the middle, north south valleys in the middle of the state. And it's at 7,200 feet elevation. The house is and um, it's at the mouth of this beautiful canyon called Ike's Canyon and. There's a little creek that runs all year long because it's Nevada is the driest state in the U.S., as I understand it. So it's intensely dry. We can go. It's it's met months without rain. And uh, sage, sage down in the valley and then up the canyons is uh, pinyon pine and juniper. And high up, you'll have some bigger pines. But there's so detritus from all kinds of, you know, stagecoach used to go through there. There's a stone cabin on the property that used to be a stagecoach stop and arrowheads all over the place and cave paintings across the valley. And people have lived there for, I have an arrowhead that's, these archaeologists told me is 5,000 years old that I found next to the chicken coop one day. And it's not an arrowhead, it's more of a knife but it's a place that humans have been for a really long time and there's very few humans there now. And it's for me a soothing paradise place. I mean, you know, I think about George O'Keefe, who is kind of a hero of mine. Her husband, Alfred Stieglitz was a new Englander and he liked green places and she liked the desert and, for her, the browns were very beautiful and rich. And and I think different people have different feelings about landscape like that. And I would not have thought of myself as a, as a desert person, but the landscape is so powerful for me. It's so soothing. And Alaska, you know, the mountains there are so big that you actually can't climb them unless you're a rock climber or something. You can't walk. I'm a walker. And the mountains in this place are you can walk on them there' you can go to the top of that I have this there's this pass behind uh, up, up bike's canyon and I built a cairn up there you know a pile of rocks just like in the book that I go there when something good happens and I put another rock on there <laughs> and just look around and it's it's just a wonderful place for my my psyche or my body or my soul.
0: It's really good. How did you wind up there? How do you wind up in (laughs) Iconia?
1: Well, I was having fun, I guess. So I had uh, a book come out in 2015 called Reptile House. It's a collection of short stories. And I like to travel. So I took myself on a book tour across the US, visiting my friends, sort of like what I'm doing now, only in person things. Everything's digital, mostly now. And I was with my niece and nephew who were 17 and 15 at the time. And they had East Coast kids and they had never been camping. And I'm crazy Aunt Robin to everybody in my family. And so I said, I want to take those guys. And we met in Denver and we we're driving over to San Francisco. And I said, this is an atlas. These are maps inside. <laughs> we're not going to use our phones. We're going to navigate. You're going to navigate us to San Francisco. and You're going to find these campgrounds. So we ended up on Highway 50 the loneliest road in America going right through east-west through Nevada. And the kids were getting tracked by their dad on their phones, which I didn't know. But he called us at this really remote campground. I didn't know that. I can't believe that he even got through saying this old family friend is really as close as you can possibly get to you. He's He's at this ranch really nearby. Can you gotta bring the kids in there? And I didn't really have time to bring the kids in because we had to be in San Francisco. But I had been preaching all this about, you know, adventure and no cell phones. And there's there's no way I couldn't take them into this ranch after all my preaching. So so we met this crazy guy, Jerry, who had built this ranch. He's a friend of the family of the kids. And I met him. And if you're, I was single at the time or almost single. And uh, if a single woman shows up in the modern Valley, like, <laughs> somehow the word gets out <laughs> that, that there's a woman over there. So um, this guy, Jerry, I met him and, and we kept in touch. And uh, about a year later, I came back for a visit. And about a year later, I came back for a visit. And then a year later, I came back and Stayed So that's how I ended up there because of Reptile House.
0: Wow. Okay. What a <laughs> life you're living. And now yeah. you you guys do like the writer's retreats happen on your yeah. ranch. So talk about Whoa. that because I think a lot of people listening are writers or aspiring writers. And it strikes me that going out into, you know, the high desert in Nevada and getting away from things got to be a good place to go write.
1: Well, I, I think it's the best place on the planet to write myself. Um, but it's – Jerry was running it as a an Airbnb, which we still do it as an Airbnb if people want to come. But I told him when I got out there, because I was working on this novel, I was kind of going back and forth to the East Coast because my mom was really sick at that time. But I said, you know, this is fine for tourists – but it's really, really remote. It's like somebody want needs to really want to go to a remote place. And there's a lot of remote places or closer to Las Vegas or Reno for somebody who wants to go to the desert. But a writer is looking for something different from that. And I said, This place is perfect for writers because it's really kind of a pain to get to. It takes it's three it's four hours from Reno. It's five hours from Las Vegas. You have to think about tires like we get flat tires all the time, but a writer is not necessarily the same as a tourist. A writer wants to come and sit somewhere where they can hear their thoughts for a week or two weeks or a month and where the people there are trying to facilitate them having a stupendously productive time for that for that week or two weeks or month, because they are writers themselves and they know what a writer needs. So, we are inviting writers because we like to be around writers. And I I don't get to talk to writers that much unless they come <laughs> out to us. But yeah, it's uh, silent and you can concentrate and it's beautiful and and you're sitting there working and a herd of horses walk in and you can go out and interact with wild horses and there's mules these and not mules <laughs> you know the mules there's we have wild donkeys that kind of hang out there and and it's i believe a very very good place to get what you're talking about silence and silence in a natural setting is noisy you know it's wind and hummingbirds (laughs) that are fighting for hummingbird food and and chickens and hawks and hawks trying to get your chickens and it's quite busy and dramatic but it's in this healthy way that I believe is extremely good for creative work I mean I guess it would be just as good for a painter but because I'm a writer and i i know how hard it is to write a book i know how hard it is to keep your thought if there's things happening that are distracting you you have that thought and it's just right there and then the phone rings or so we try to protect the writers it's it's real small and it's definitely not for everybody you have to you know there's no hospital for two hundred and two hundred 200 miles we cannot get the food everybody wants, the grocery store over in Eureka is very basic, but it's uh, it's going back in time. It's going back in time.
0: Wow. So if people want to go to Ike's Canyon and work on their book, they can find you online and yeah. they email you. Yep. And they then next thing you know, they're at the Reno airport going what the hell am i doing and they're driving out there
1: (laughs) yep yeah we we pick people up sometimes if they need it we we worry a lot about people's tires so we if people drive out there we meet them at pavement because we don't want to worry because there's no internet reception once you get off pavement so we don't know where it's really quite simple to get there but there are no road signs there's there's no indicators and it can be scary for people to drive out on dirt roads because, you know, the well, we we had a house sitter a couple of years ago from France, and we were leaving, and she was pushing the couch against the door to like block the door in case somebody came and, you know, broke into the house. <laughs> and of course, we're we're trying to say to her, there is no safer place on the planet, you know, during COVID. There is no safer place that you could possibly be. There's 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 nothing dangerous here. But you know, people are not used to being in solitude. They're not used to being alone, they're not used to being in the quiet and it's it's a very overwhelming feeling and it takes a couple days for the sort of digital energy or the noise or the advertising to sort of slough off of a person. So we, we, we pretty much don't let anyone come unless they come for like at least three days to sort of feel what it feels like. But it's, it's very heavenly. It's very heavenly to feel the quiet and sit on the porch and feel the wind and look at the, you know, um, there is no such thing as boredom there. Boredom does not exist. And if, 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 uh, but it is, you have to be willing to, it's it's not a fancy place at all. It's it's a, a ranch house. It's, you know, it's very, very basic in a lot of ways. You know, we're on solar. We're on a well. You have to think about water consumption. And on cloudy days, we have to run a generator. Like it's, but it to me, all of that is kind of, fantastic because you're aware of how you're living and how your living impacts every decision that you make. And we have a wood-fired hot tub that we Jerry made and it's all welded, this crazy thing. One of our neighbors made this crazy sculpture for the top of it and we get recycled wood from Reno. And you just are kind of always thinking about keeping the systems going and I just think it's really good. It's like living on the moon. Like you would have you have to plan ahead. You ha- when you go to town, you have to think of everything you might need because you don't want to go to town again anytime soon. And you should I bring two tires or one? You just have to think about your way that you're living constantly and I think it's good. Wow. All right. Come on out. Uh, all Come right. on out, Brad. What's the web <laughs> what's the
0: website? Plug the website so people can find oh, you.
1: www.ikescanyon.com. I K E S Canyon dot com.
0: But I mean how very
1: easy to find. Yeah, okay.
0: But if people email you, like it sounds like you don't have internet.
1: No, we have internet. We have internet.
0: Oh you do? Okay. I didn't know. Yeah, we
1: when when somebody comes, we have really bad internet, so if you had wanted to do this, we had to leave there to do this interview with you because it would it would be all choppy. But we have internet. If somebody wants to not know the internet. Like you you can have the internet there or not have the internet there. I would kind of I've thought about doing digital detox for people so that they just can't get on, but we don't but that's their decision. You know, I lived in Alaska, I mean new New Hampshire and the motto there is live free or die. So we let people do what they want.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You've given me a lot to think about, Robin. <laughs>
1: Good. But I think well, that, I thought the book was gonna be enough.
0: Well, I mean it's all of a piece. And I think that uh you know, like you say, you've had a lot of fun, you seem well adjusted, you seem happy, content with your life. I can't help but uh also point out that you have spent much of your life living like you know, far away from most people. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and also like far away from most of the technologies that inundate most people's lives, there could be a lesson in that. Like maybe it's the better way to be. Or maybe it's just, it's your druthers.
1: (laughs) I think that the whole digital, it's a digital experiment going on right now. Um, if if it was just a drug, they would have had to test it for (laughs) about 30 years before they started giving it to five-year-olds. And I mean, I don't have kids, so it's really easy for me to criticize, but it seems quite a dangerous experiment to me. And, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, we all got to run around in the woods and (laughs) get dirty all the time. And I just see a lot of kids on their phones and i think that is not a good thing
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> not... well i'll be sending my children to ike's canyon <laughs> it is a daycare isn't yeah. it you can oh,
1: yeah we, we we'll take them hiking yeah. well jerry, jerry will teach them how to start a fire because yeah. he believes everybody should know how to start a fire you know you gotta know how to keep yourself warm so yeah send them out
0: all right, we'll toughen them up. They'll be terrified. My daughter, <laughs> but what the, she's grown up in Los Angeles, which like I think about, it, I'm like, my God, compared to the way that I grew up in the Midwest, you know, it's like a completely different thing. And it's hard not to wonder, like, what, what is, how is this going to, you know, how's it going to play out? But hopefully the fact that she has close contact, my wife is from Minnesota originally. So We've got like some midwestern vibes still.
1: That's very midwestern. Yeah, Illinois, you and you and Minnesota and Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin. That's that's solid.
0: Yeah, I love. I don't know. I have a lot of affection for the upper Midwest, or like especially Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, I love the. You know, I love it up there. It's so pretty, and the people are fun. I don't it know.
1: is. Yeah, it is.
0: All right. Well I have loved talking with you. Congratulations on your book. Thank you thank for making you. me thank you, thank you for making the like Herculean effort to even have this conversation. Uh you had to drive hours and hours just to be able to uh to do this without chopping up. So I appreciate it. And uh are you working on another book? I guess is the question I always end with.
1: Well, I was working on a couple of things last year because this book was submitted just before COVID hit and so there was there was a long time uh that i was sitting there waiting and i was working on basically two novels and i don't know if either one of them is shit because you know i write a lot of junk (laughs) (laughs) but i'm hoping hoping to get back to that after my little party that we're having for the book by driving around and doing whatever the press asks and talking to cool people like you and, but getting back to reality in the desert in my little bunker and probably on a novel.
0: Okay. Do we have any hints yeah. about what it's about? Can you? Like, oh, to...
1: no, I can't stand talking about my books when I'm working on them. I just don't do it. I, I told everyone I was working in a Western and that was it. I do have another collection of stories coming out after this. So, and other stories bought both my novel and my second collection. So the second collection will be out, I think in a a year or so. And it's crazy and awesome. I love my stories. So that one will be coming out sometime soon.
0: All right. Well, back to the bunker with you. Congratulations again. Nice to meet you and uh, best of luck with uh, all of it.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me and for reading. And it's just, it's just, I'm amazed that somebody like you would have me in. I'm really, really thrilled. So thank you.
0: All right, there we go. That is Robin McLean, And her debut novel, Pity the Beast, is available now from And Other Stories. You can find her on the internet at robinmclane.net. And if you want to go to Ike's Canyon, go on a writer's retreat, get away from civilization, just go to Ike'sCanyon.com for more information. One more time, the book is called Pity the Beast. Available now, go get your copy. The Other People Podcast is free. Support the show over at patreon.com slash pod. If you would like to write to me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think about my book cover, about this program, about life in general. Letters at otherppl.com. You can find this show on the internet at otherppl.com. You can find it on Twitter at otherppL or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. The Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? Every single episode of this podcast is up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, search for the show by name Other PPL, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's free. Press the subscribe button. it helps the cause. How does it help the cause? Well, the more subscribers we get, the better we do algorithmically. More people will find us, basically. Same goes for rating and reviewing the show. If you have a couple of minutes, if you have like two minutes of your life, go rate and review the show wherever you listen, over at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is. Rate the show, review it real quick. Helps other people find the show. Improves the show's placement, if that makes sense. All right. Happy holidays. I don't know what I'm going to do exactly schedule-wise. I think I might take a week off after Christmas, but we'll see. We'll see. (laughs)